Welcome to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast. On the last show, our first Halloween special, we took a ride into the horrors of 1974 Stepney, overrun by a terrifying breed of large and rather vicious rats. We had fun, the feedback was great, and we even did a short patron exclusive looking at the Canadian movie adaptation, Deadly Eyes. It was thoroughly enjoyable, our adventure off the beaten track, and, for all of its flaws, I'm tempted to take a look at the first sequel to The Rats, Lair, but that's for some time in the future. Also, our mate Alan, hello Alan, asked if we'd cover The Fog. I'll give that some thought too, and it's in scope to be fair, as that was another pop's hand-me-down back in the day. Primarily though, this is a moorcock flavoured podcast. So on this show, we're back in familiar territory, as Loz returns and we rejoin Coram on his journey towards epic confrontation with the forces of chaos. As it happens, book two is only about 20 pages long, but we make the best of it anyway, with a few salty beers and probably a load of old guff along the way. So, sit back, feed your caged god some sweetmeats, and join us in Derry and Tom's as we delve into the Night of the Swords, book two. <laughs> All right, we're back in virtual Derry and Tom's, and Loz has made his triumphant return to look at the Knight of the Swords book two, the epic, lengthy Knight of the Swords book two, which I'm sure will keep us rolling for quite a while. Welcome back, yeah. Loz. Thank you very much. I think we've really set out the epicness of this particular uh, <laughs> podcast by possibly choosing the shortest book in the universe. Yeah, um, so d- despite the fact we have really, really laboured, you know, in the best possible way, obviously, some Michael Moorcock books where they're split into three books, which is very, very handy, other than The Eternal Champion, where we just have to split it by roughly 60 pages <laughs> per part. Coincidentally, we did the rats all in one go, but you know, we we, we don't want to spoil our uh, our record of of doing four and a half hours per hundred and sixty page Michael Moore. How how long is the rats then? Is it uh, the rats was somewhere in the region of two hundred pages, so it, it, it proves that actually, if we put our mind to it, we could do a whole book in one podcast. But you know what? Where's the fun in that? Yeah, exactly. Plus, that? plus, you need a really severe lockdown to really. Yeah, force yourself into that. Two hundred pages is a lot in one in one session. Yeah, that is very true. And also, originally when I decided on doing this podcast, I thought, right, okay, Michael Moorcock's written about one hundred and twenty books. If we get a minimum of three shows out of each one, I can really milk this for about eighteen years, and that's yeah, without well, doing side pods. Yeah, and when we get to the ice schooner, you know, we've really uh, we've nailed it. I think. Yeah. Okay. Well. You, you you make a valid point. Maybe the golden barge we might do in one go. <laughs> Maybe we'll see. Yeah. God, I've not read that for years. Hmm. I think there's probably a good reason. Yeah, very possibly. But you know what? We'll revisit it at some point. Incidentally, you know, today um, I was telling my team about the podcast because, of course, I tell everybody about the podcast at every possible opportunity. But a member of my team is Dutch, and uh, and I said to them all because I'd, I'd raised on our team huddle. Oh, I work in the kind of environment where <laughs> things are called huddles. Um, yeah, so there's yeah. like 28 people on this huddle. Um, and one of my colleagues, he, he does a podcast, which is thoroughly entertaining. So we're talking about podcasts in front of these 28 people. 
And uh, I said, incidentally, everybody, we did a Halloween special last weekend, and I know none of you have ever heard of Michael Moorcock, but surely someone out there has heard of James Herbert, and someone of my age must have heard of the rats, and all 28 of them didn't have a fucking clue what I was talking about. So we really are beyond niche when it comes to mainstream uh, society, or certainly where I work. But uh, a member of my team, he said, well, you know, my excuse is that I'm Dutch. And I said, aha. Yeah. But Michael Mocock's been translated into a gazillion languages. So I looked it up, and actually there's quite a lot of Dutch Mocock translations which have very, very funky names. So uh, Elric of Melnibone is called Storm over Melnibone. Like it. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. as if to continue the theme, the quest for Tanelon is called Storm over Tanelon. <laughs> <laughs> like it, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Slightly um, I, better, I think. Yeah. yeah, I really think they should have done the rest of them. You know, storm over the golden schooner or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure that would have worked. Uh, but anyway, I sent him links and said, "You got no excuse now. Get reading." Well, I, I was talking to a, one of my friends today who's is quite erudite in the book reading department. Yeah, and was talking about Mocock and tonight possibly doing a recording, yeah. and he said, uh, "Oh yeah, did he write Wheel of Time?" And, uh, if if you'd have been in a room with him, I'd like to think you'd hit him. I might have, I might have left in a huff, possibly. <laughs> you know, oh, well, all right, that's yeah. a fa- that's a fair backup. Uh, well, I think, I think extreme violence would have been preferable. Well, that's what, uh, yeah, would have wanted. But you know, he's a yeah. he's a friend. But I, I was quite surprised. There's like wheel of time, mm. really. Have you ever given the wheel of time a bash? No, because mm. it's the size of France. Yeah, and it's. Uh, and it's probably... I've never even wanted to get near it, to be honest. Yeah, well, there's like 10 volumes and, and... Volumes? There's 10 volumes. <laughs> yeah, that's how traumatic it I is. I think that is. It's volumes. Yeah. There's, there's, there's ten, 10 volumes, each one of them the size... Certainly, if not the size of France, the size of Burgundy, at least. Yeah. And uh, a friend of a friend recommended uh, The Wheel of Time, and she said she actually wanted to do a Wheel of Time podcast. So I picked up the first one, and then a couple of weeks later, I saw two and three in a... A charity shop. I yeah. thought I'll grab them as well. Excellent doorstops, but I, I, I yeah, read I was going to say, were they keeping the door open? Yeah, I read the first sixty pages. I was like, ah, oh, fuck this. <laughs> there's, there's just no way. I'm not wading through twenty eight thousand pages of this nonsense. And then uh, I think uh, I mentioned it on Twitter. And she said, oh no, but it gets really good in the third book. It's like, all right, it gets really good after two and a half thousand pages. No. No. Yeah, but I would declare myself out right now. At the pace we do podcasts, if we did the Wheel of Time, an hour and a half per sixty pages. My God, we could really. Yeah, but the, that. Thi- the thing is, though, by the time we finish it, we're both of Alzheimer's, and uh, <laughs> I'd just be just be talking about just wheels or something. Yeah, possibly and, time. And and I think quite on brand would get Alzheimer's halfway through the ninth book or the yeah, tenth yeah. book, whichever one he didn't finish. Yeah, that would really. And, that, and our, yeah. our 150 listeners who've listened to us for 10 years would be really upset. Yeah, and possibly we'd have to start from the first book again because we just forget everything. Uh, yeah. Nobody wants that, you no. know. No, yeah. we're just not, not, not going to go there. Was it Robert Jordan? Robert Jordan, yeah. That's Writer of some truly, truly dreadful Conan books as well. Sorry, Did Robert he? Jordan right. fans. Yeah, yeah, he wrote, um, I think, half a dozen Conan novels. Did he? Um, where you know, he talked about I don't know Conan as a kid working in his blacksmith dad's blacksmith shop or whatever. It was like, it was, you know, we don't need to, we don't need anybody to speculate on, on what errands Conan ran for his dad when he was nine, 
Yeah, um, what yeah. his favourite bread was or <laughs> favourite sandwich. Yeah, well, maybe for the role-playing game, we'd need to know those things. Well, yeah, obviously, you'd need to yeah, roll five. It's a ham sandwich. That's Excellent. right. Let's yeah. move on. <laughs> oh, I wanted cheese. Oh, yeah. Oh. I fucked up my entire <laughs> charge end. Oh, dear. I don't know what that is, but I'll, uh, I'll laugh along. You call yourself a role player. Well, I don't. Right, that, so... That seems, yeah. Well, that's, that's because you effortlessly resist being a geek at all costs, but it doesn't work. Right, I'm going <laughs> into my... Well. Yeah. I'm going into my Fuller's Friends Hovey Doug, uh, which is a wee heavy, 7.4% by volume. What does it say on it? I can't read it because it's too small and my eyes can't cope with it. Hang on. If I hold, if I hold it a foot away... Uh, a, a Caledonian classic, this wee heavy, is made using the malts with not a new world hop in sight. Smooth caramel and biscuit notes come to the fore in this rich, full-bodied ale. Hovey Dug? Well, because it's hovey like a hovey dug, of course. Don't, uh, whatever the fuck. Who gives a shit uh, what they're saying? To, to be table. honest, that, that, All that sounds would, ridiculous. That would be the worst advert I've ever heard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no offence, but I think it, because you're drinking a pint of heavy, I think, you know, in mem- memory of uh, Sir Sean of Connery, yeah. you should have I'll go and thump in. some women. <laughs> Phil, line your chin up. I'm coming for you. In the nicest possible way, obviously. And for people who need context of that particular scene. Right, so this is actually quite a dark ale, surprisingly. Fortunately, it's not a pint. It's a 330ml bottle, which is usually a winner when we drink these stupid strong beers. Well, let's give it a go. We'll get to yours in a second. Mm, it's like a very, very syrupy brown ale. Not altogether horrible. Um, right. Actually an improvement on what we've been drinking more recently. What you got? Well, I, I was wearing the last one, mostly, because <laughs> uh, it exploded all over my trousers. <laughs> v- vicar. Yeah. Uh, so I was drinking, stroke wearing, um, drifting an American pale ale by the Electric Bear Brewing Company. Oh, that's a good name. Uh, which has got really small rating, but I think it says beer. So so that was nice. I, oh. I tasted of it, but this one I thought was more of a more of a challenge. So I've gone oh. for. It's called an Arbor Cafe Creme, a chocolate and coffee stout. Uh huh. With luxurious oatmeal stout brewed with freshly ground coffee and roasted cacao nibs. You know, that that sounds like the most hipster brew I think you could possibly imagine. Short of short of a mushroom sour. It don't <laughs> it don't get much more hipster than that. Yeah, so so that's what I've gone for, being the hipster of the two of us, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually quite pleasant. Ah. It's 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 got a, it does taste of a nice uh, got a nice coffee note chocolatey. Twelve percent. No, it's not really. I'm only joking. It's a, it's a you know a conservative six point nine percent. Not bad. But it's quite pleasant. Um, we should we should have a couple of these uh, when we meet up in the uh, the real world. Yeah. Well, we're actually making some level of progress then, aren't we? From the brake fluid plus raisins. <laughs> that we uh, that we had last time around. Yeah, that but was anyway. quite hideous, wasn't it? Yeah, it was unbelievably terrible. But we're here not just to drink beer, uh, challenging no. strange beers. We're here to talk about the Night of the Swords book two. So I suppose we should recap 
what went on in book one, which was essentially Coram, hipster, arty-farty, aristocrat, last yeah. of a number of dying families. And he just like spent his last kind of decade making some music. I mean, that's going to be a long piece of music, that isn't it? Yeah. Almost, yeah. almost self-indulgent, you might say. Unless it was just the same three-minute single that he was just continually refining. Yeah, that's what we used to do in the studio. We recorded the same song for six months. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So could could be possible. It maybe got two albums worth of material out of those ten years. <laughs> yeah, pop, pop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what I like to think. Because otherwise, yeah. he was spending far too much time in his gymnasia. Yeah, uh, exactly. But anyway, his, his his old man who was getting on a bit says, "Oh, why don't you head out and uh, and find." My extended family and uh, and just just check on them or something. So, yeah, it's a bit dubious, that wasn't it? A bit it was of a, a dubious bit. quest. Yeah. Like, you don't see how Uncle Derek is. Yeah, all right. Yeah, <laughs> but take your weapons just in case. Yeah, unfortunately, when he gets to Derek and Mavis's house, yeah. they've been brutally moidered by yeah. by the Mabden Horde. Yeah, and uh, he gets back to his own house and they're brutally murdered his family as well in a rather spectacularly unpleasant fashion. And whilst tracking them, they spot him and terribly torture him and put his eye out and cut his hand off, but he manages to escape into one of the dimensions that, he, that the Vadak can shift into and, uh, and escapes them. Gets some assistance from the brown man of La and some other Larka, who I forget. And yeah, then some tall dude. Yeah, some tall dude. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and then rocks up at uh, Moidel's Mount, where... That's- the Margravine of Moidel's Mount, Rolina, takes pity on him because she's just been widowed. Widowed, yeah. Yeah. Or maybe she's, she's just wi- nice. Bit bold. Been widowed at some point. So, of course, they fall in love. And then Glandith Acre, i.e. Oliver Reed, and his, uh, his Mabden barbarian hordes turn up to cause yeah. a ruckus. They have a bit of a battle. Everything goes a bit pear-shaped. The brown man of La. Gets, yeah, the bra- uh, the, yeah, the brown guy, he he, he gets chopped, doesn't he, and uh, thrown mm-hmm. onto the causeway, if I remember rightly. Yeah, um, so they have more battling, and then Relina performs a summoning, and a dead ship turns up with a dead crew, and it turns out to be the, the Margrave, her dead husband. And in order to, uh, to avoid the chop, they make a bargain, a pact with the Margrave, and Coram goes with them, and they set sail to... The land of the gorge god, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, they go somewhere because um, they need some help. It's the equivalent of Ipswich, I think. Yeah. So we kick off and Coram is aboard the dead Margrave's ship and Relina is with him, entranced in the Margrave's quarters. And everything's a bit minging and a bit damp because, of course, the ship's been at the bottom of the sea for a while. And this is this. Oh, by the way, this is book two in which Prince Coram receives a gift, and makes a pact. And actually, that's quite a long description of book two. It, it sums it up, though, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it does. So, chapter one: the ambitious sorcerer. As they sailed through the night, Coram made many attempts to waken Relina from her trance, but nothing worked. She lay among the damp and rotting silks of a bunk and stared at the roof. Through a portal too small to afford escape came a faint green light. Coram paced the cabin, still barely able to believe his predicament. These were plainly the dead Margrave's own quarters, and if Coram were not here now, would the Margrave be sharing the bunk with his wife? 
Torrance shuddered and pressed his hand to his skull, certain that he was insane or had been in trance, certain that none of this could be. As of Arag, he was prepared for many events and situations that would have seemed strange to the Mabden. Yet this was something that seemed completely unnatural to him. It defied all he knew of science. If he were sane, and all was as it seemed, then the Mabden's powers were greater than anything the Varag had known. Yet they were dark and morbid powers, unhealthy powers, that were quintessentially evil. So, a couple of things to look at there. A bit queasy Coram to think, would the dead Margrave be shagging his missus if I wasn't here? Steady on Coram, son. That's a, a, bit, a bit of a dark thought. I was going to say, that, that kind of sets up the um, the entire book th- uh, book two, doesn't it? Where he just basically spends most of his time going, is it a dream? Oh, yeah. is it a dream? Is it yeah. reality? Oh my God, the humanity, etc. Yeah, but it also reinforces the fact that the Vanak are like a, a scientific and rational race rather than rather than a typical fantasy magical race because our protagonist through whom we see all of this action, which is dimension shifting gods, demigods... Uh, you know, eyes and hands of dead gods and various other things. He's actually kind of a rationalist, and he really yeah. struggles with with all of this magical nonsense. It's it's very, the Vadag as well, very similar to the Melnabonians, aren't they? They just like shut themselves away, yeah, ponce around a lot, really. Yeah. just it's just too. It's the dichotomy, isn't it? The Melnabonians went, oh, let's take loads of drugs and do yeah. loads of horrible stuff. Vadag went, let's ponce around, doing poetry, possibly interpreting. The gods through dance and making hats. Yeah. Uh, whereas the Melnabonians are, let's turn these 47 people into a surgically enhanced choir that all sing the same or different notes um, through their uh, open wounds in their necks. Um, but also yeah. we'll do we'll do demons and sorcery as well yeah, through yeah. our ancient tomes. Yeah, so there are, there are kind of different versions of the same kind of deal. But I, I kind of another reason why the Karam character is a little bit more appealing, I think, is the fact that he's more relatable because of all this, because he kind of tries to rationalise things and he has a, a rational approach to things. Yeah, and he's generally it's innocent abroad as well, isn't it? So yeah. he starts off as like, uh, it's almost like a child, isn't he? But yeah. a child who kind of read a lot of books. Yeah, basically he's a nerd, isn't he? Yeah. 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 So Coram feels a lot of disgust at the slimy, rotting nature of the ship, although that the locked door... Whilst all the other wood seems to be rotten, the locked door is unusually strong and some other force seems to be at work there. Oh, which, magic uh, is, doors. Yeah, it's basically like, right, the GM says, everything's rotten, so we say, can we kick the door? And he goes, no. <laughs> oh, the door? Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no some, something else going on there. So, yeah, there is some other force at work. It's like plot struck GM contrivance. Yeah. But to Coram, it all feels a bit dreamlike and shortly he tries to see into other dimensions which he's able to do generally, but he sees now, because it's just not working for him. And then things kind of dim. He stood in a dark hall with walls of fluted stone, which curved over his head and touched to form the roof high above. The workmanship of the hall was equal to anything the Varaga created, but it was not beautiful, rather it was sinister. His head ached. The air before him shivered with a pale blue light, and then a tall youth stood there. The face was young, but the eyes were ancient. He was dressed in a simple flowing gown of yellow sermite. He bowed, turned his back, walked a little way, and then sat down on a stone bench that had been built into a wall. So I remember reading this years ago. I was thinking, oh, this is Ariok, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. He's yeah. like a crap, a crap Ariok. Crap Ariok, yeah. yeah. Um, kind of go- go- golden, beautiful youth with ancient eyes, but it's not Ariok. 
It's no, no. Shul and Jiv- Hang on, who is it? Shul and Jivan. Jivan? Jivan. The Lord, the Lord of all that is dead in the sea. Mm. Specifically for the sea. Yeah. One of his many titles. Of course, it's one of his many titles. Many titles, many guises. And we found that the ship, the dead ship, can't sail in the day. And Coram challenges Shul, suggesting his motive for being involved is that he relishes the horror. This is after he's kind of thought, wait, okay, so is this a dream? I'm kind of in this place. Who's this guy? And uh, it turns out that Relina's summoning, essentially, Shul and Jivan answered the summoning, resurrected the dead Margrave to carry them where they were going. Um, but it turns out Shul is a bit of a bugger, isn't he? Wait, bit of a bugger old Shul. It- He's, he's not even that, though, is he? He's, he's just a bit of a berk, isn't he? he he's, <laughs> you know what I mean? He, he's one of the... Because uh, they, have, they have a chat, don't they? And basically, it's quite a tedious conversation, isn't it? So you've got Shul basically being the Donald Trump of kind of sorcerers with their own island. Yeah. And you've got and you've got Prince Coram going, oh, is it a dream? Ooh. Yeah. And it, it goes on for ages, doesn't it? Yeah, well, um, I was I was thinking we should do this as a reading because there's barely, <laughs> there's barely any narrative or description. It's all just dialogue interchange between yeah, yeah. Coram and Shul and Jivan. I think I, th- I think we should do this as a reading. Coram says, "Give me back Rolina." He says, "I intend to." And Coram and looks Coram suspiciously. So let's read from there. I'll be Shul and Jivan. You right. be Coram. Great. How does that sound? And we'll do it for six pages. <laughs> There's really? an epic challenge. That is right, a challenge okay. when I can barely see, but yeah, right. let's go for it. Let's do it. Drama class. Drama go 101. On. You do not think I would bother to answer such a feeble attempt at a summoning as the one she made, do you? If I did not have other motives in mind. Your motive is clear. You relish the horror of her predicament. Nonsense. Am I so childish? I have outgrown such things. I see you are beginning to argue in Mabden terms. It is just as well for you if you wish to survive in this Mabden dream. Is it a dream? Of sorts. Real enough. Here's what you might call the dream of a god. There again you might say that it is a dream that a god has allowed to become reality. I refer, of course, to the Knight of the Swords, who rules the Five Plains. The Sword Rulers? They do not exist. It is a superstition once entertained by the Vatag and the Nadra. The sword rulers do exist, Master Coram. You have one of them at least to thank for your misfortunes. It was the Knight of Swords who decided to let the Mabden grow strong and destroy the old races. Why? Because he was bored by you. Who would not be? The world has become more interesting now. I'm sure you will agree. So chaos and destruction is interesting? I thought you had outgrown such childish ideas. Perhaps I have. But has the Knight of Swords... You do not speak plainly, Prince Shule. True. A vice I find impossible to give up. Still, it enlivens a dull conversation sometimes. Well, if you're bored with this conversation, return Relena to me and I will leave. I have it in my power to bring Relena back to you and set you free. That's why I let Master Moidel answer a summoning. I wish to meet you, Master Coram. You did not know I would come. I thought it likely. Why did you wish to meet me? I have something to offer you. In case you refuse my gift, I thought it wise to have Mistress Relina on hand. And why should I refuse a gift? My gifts are sometimes refused. Folk are suspicious of me. The nature of my calling disturbs them. 
Few have a kind word for a sorcerer, Master Coram. Where is the door? I will seek Rulina myself. I'm weary, Prince Shul. Of course you are. You've suffered much. You thought your own dream a reality, and you thought reality a dream. A shock. There is no door. I have no need of them. Will you not hear me out? If you choose to speak in a less elliptical manner, I... <laughs> you are a poor guest, Vadak. I thought your race a courteous one. I'm no longer typical. A shame that the last of a race should not typify its virtues. However, I am, I hope, a better host, and I will comply with your request. I am an ancient being. I am not of the Mabden. I am not of the folk you call the old races. I came before you. I belong to a race which began to degenerate. I did not wish to degenerate, and so I concerned myself with the discovery of ancient ways in which I could preserve my mind in all its wisdom. I discovered the means to do such a thing. As you see, I am essentially pure mind. I can transfer myself from one body to another, and with some effort, thus I am immortal. Efforts have been made to extinguish me over the millennia, but they have never been successful. It would have involved the destruction of too much. Therefore I have, generally speaking, been allowed to continue my existence and my experiments. My wisdom has grown. I control both life and death. I can destroy and I can bring back to life. I can give other beings immortality if I choose. By my own mind and my own skill I have become, in short, a god. Perhaps not the most powerful of gods, but that will come eventually. Now you will understand that the gods have simply popped into existence, who exist only through some cosmic fluke. They resent me. They refuse to acknowledge my godhood. They're jealous. They would like to have done with me, for I disturb their self-esteem. The Knight of the Swords is my enemy. He wishes me dead. So, you see, we have much in common, Master Coram. I am no god, Prince Shule. In fact, until recently I had no belief in gods, either. The fact that you're not god, Master Coram, is evident from your obtuseness. <laughs> that is not what I meant. What I did mean was this. We are both the last representatives of races whom, for reasons of their own, the sword rulers decided to destroy. We are both, in their eyes, anachronisms which must be eradicated. As they replaced my folk with the Vadag and the Nadrag, so they are replacing the Vadag and the Nadrag with the Mabden. A similar degeneration is taking place in your people. Forgive me if I associate you with the Nadrag, as it did in mine. Like me, you have attempted to resist this, to fight against it. I chose science, you chose the sword. I will leave it to you to decide which was the wisest choice. You seem somewhat petty for a god. Now, I am shall we... a petty god at the moment. You will find me more lordly and benign when I achieve the position of a greater god. Will you let me continue, Master Coram? Can you not understand that I have acted so far out of fellow feeling for you? Nothing you've done so far seems to indicate your friendship. I said fellow feeling, not friendship. I assure you, Master Coram, I could destroy you in an instant, and your lady too. I'd feel more patience if I knew you had released her from that dreadful bargain she made and brought her here so I could see for myself and see that she lives and are capable of being saved. You'll have to take my word. Then destroy me. You should have greater respect for me, Master Coram. And <laughs> why is that? I've seen a few tricks and heard a great deal of pompous talk. I'm offering you much. I warn you, be more pleasant to me. And what are you offering me? I am offering you your life. I could take it. You've told me that. I'm offering you a new hand and a new eye. 
I am offering you the return of this Mabden female you have such a perverse affection for. Oh, very well, I apologise. Each to his own pleasures, I suppose. I'm offering you the opportunity to take vengeance on the cause of your ills. Grandithacray? No, no, no. The Knight of the Swords, the Knight of the Swords. The one who allowed the Mabden to take root in the first place in this plane. But what of Glandith? I've sworn his destruction. You accuse me of pettiness. Your ambitions are tiny. With the powers I offer you, you can destroy any number of Mabdenels. Continue. Continue? Continue? Have I not offered you enough? You do not say how you propose to make these offers into something more than so much breath. Oh, you are insulting. The Mabden fear me. The Mabden gibber when I materialise myself. Some of them die of terror when I make my powers manifest. I've seen too much horror of late. That should make no difference. Your trouble is, Vadag, that these horrors I employ are Mabden horrors. You associate with Mabden, but you are still a Vadag. The dark dreams of the Mabden frighten you less than they frighten the Mabden themselves. If you had been a Mabden, I should have had an easier task of convincing you. But could you not use a Mabden for the task you have in mind? Am I right? Your brains are sharpening. That is exactly the truth. No Mabden could survive what you must survive. And I am not even sure of Adag. Then what is the task? To steal something. I need, if I am to develop my ambitions further. Could you not steal it yourself? Of course not. How could I leave my island? They would destroy me then, of a certainty. Who would destroy you? My rivals, of course. The sword rulers and the rest. I only survive because I protect myself with all manner of devices and spells which... Though they have, at this moment, the power to break, they dare not do so for fear of the consequences. To break my spells might lead to the very dissolution of the Fifteen Plains and the extinction of the Sword Rulers themselves. No, you must do the thieving for me. No other in this whole plane would have the courage or the motivation. For if you do this thing, I will restore Relina to you. And if you still wish it, you will have the power to take your vengeance on Glandetha Cray. But I assure you, the real one to blame for the very existence of Glandith is the Knight of the Swords, and by stealing this thing from him, you will be thoroughly avenged. What must I steal? <laughs> his heart, Master Coram. You wish me to kill a god and take his heart? Plainly, you know nothing of gods. If you killed the knight, the consequences would be unimaginable. He does not keep his heart in his breast. It is better guarded than that. His heart is kept on this plane, his brain is kept on another, and so on. This protects him. Do you see? <sighs> you must explain more later now. Release Relena from that ship and I will try to do what you ask of me. You are excessively obstinate, Master Coram. If I am the only one who can help you further with your ambitions, Prince Shule, then I can surely afford to be. I'm glad you're not immortal, Master Coram. Your arrogance will only plague me for a few hundred years at the most. Very well. I will show you Relena. And I will show you that she is safe, but I will not release her. I will keep her here and deliver her to you when the heart of the Knight of Swords is brought to me. What use is the heart to you? With it, I can bargain very well. You may have the ambitions of a god, Master Shule, but you have the methods of a peddler. Prince Shule, your insults do not touch me. And scene. I thought we killed that, personally. Yeah, that reminds me why I've uh, never attempted acting. Uh, <laughs> ever. Well, you know, when I was reading that earlier, I was thinking, right, how, how do we summarise this? There's there's lots of good stuff in there. I really love the... I, I love it when Mocock does long dialogue interchanges. 
Um, and Shul really kind of betrays what a massive wanger he is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. entire thing. He's just a petty kind of... Is uh, the Dominic Rab of uh, <laughs> sorcerers. <laughs> you know, like... Just, it really is. Uh, just a, a petty weasel, just... Oh yeah, but look how powerful I am. Ooh, but I, yeah. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna leave this house. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's, there's a couple of things going on. There. There's a few things to unpack. One, one is, I really, really love the stuff about the, uh, the Mabden dream, and it's the dream of a god that, <laughs> yeah. just, that is just, it just is your reality. Your entire reality is just the dream of, of some god or other. Uh, I really like that, that reference to the Mabden dream and. You know, you you live the Vadag dream went for a long time, but now you're living the Mabden dream. I really yeah. like that. Yeah, and the Vadag one was probably a bit boring. Yeah, for mo- for most people. Well, unless you're, you know, unless you're really really into having a music room with like a big stack of old school, um, like analog, huge switch, clunky separates, and recording equipment, and a massive mixing desk, and you're into music, you could probably occupy yourself in there for for a few hundred years, I reckon. Yeah, I'd be all right with that. And, um, and some of the other stuff I really like in there is, is not not just the kind of the dialogue and the interchange between them, but it's like it's that old classic Mocock thing, which becomes really the the mo certainly of the Coram books, but also latterly some of the Hartman books, which is okay. Let's go engage quest mode. Yeah, I mean that that whole thing. You know, it's quite hard not to interject when you've got a massive. Uh, Basil exposition piece, isn't it? But yeah, it it does go on for a bit, doesn't it? And it kind of it just shows, you know, Coram has got a bit of steel to him as well, isn't it? He, yeah, he's kind of like, nah, you are a knobhead, shut up. Yeah, yeah, he's you not know? impressed, is he? Yeah, and then realizes, yeah, I, th- I think the, the the main his main problem is the lack of a hand and an eye, isn't it? Yeah, otherwise he'd be all right. Yeah, I think Prince Shul, Every time I read it, I go, oh, what. a what a great kind of NPC he'd make. <laughs> yeah. But also yeah, make, make a great villain when he just yeah. didn't really get on everybody's tits. Yeah, but a really crap villain. So if you're making the TV show, it'd be great. Just yeah. you could probably, you know, elongate that out for an entire episode, couldn't you? Right. Yeah. Well, I, su- I suppose um, now is a good time to engage with uh, Lord Shark's ostentatious couch. This. Sure, is is just shaped like a giant D twenty with sharp pointed corners, and um, that's extraordinarily uncomfortable to sit on unless you use a cushion. Who would you cast as Shul and Yvan? I suppose it's a little bit tricky, because he's a, a beautiful youth with ancient eyes wearing gold samite, and I'm not particularly up on beautiful youth actors. No, but I think I think you can probably bypass that. I would go for um, the guy who played Moriarty. Oh, Andrew Scott. Yeah, Andrew Scott, he'd he'd be the one for me, I think. Yes, yeah. Andrew he's... Andrew Scott does play a good knobhead. Yeah, and he he also plays. Yeah, I just think he's he's a great actor anyway, with lots of different stuff. But he he'd be ideal for Shoe, I think. He'd, he'd yeah. just you, you just watch him go. Oh, I'd want to punch him so much. <laughs> I yeah. want to hit you so hard, Shoe. Yeah, I mean we haven't got um kind of further into into the story yet, so we don't know how or in what shape Shul shows up further down the line. And it's certainly too long since I've read it to actually remember. But I think Andrew Scott is a good shout. But of course he also pops up in a couple of other guises just in these short chapters, doesn't he? So after this he Does kind he? of... Yeah, he, he disappears in a puff of smoke. And then 
Coram finds himself back in another room and Shul shows him a vision. And Shul now is um, described as an anthropoid in a green jacket and breeks. <laughs> He's a big yeah. fan of breeks, isn't he, Morgan? Yeah, yeah. Well, this is awesome because we get breeks, but he wears a different kind of trousers for his next incarnation. But he shows Coram uh, a vision of Relina in the bed, but the dead Margrave is in the sack with her. Fortunately, he's not getting jiggy with her. That would have been horrible. But it he was. has got her in a deathly embrace, and she's freaking out a little bit. So Coram objects, and Shul frees her, and suddenly she's in the room with them. And then he explains that he's released the Margrave from his undeath and let him go back to the depths of the ocean. So Coram explains to Relina that he's made a bargain and is engaged quest mode. And uh, and Relina's not overly impressed with all this business. But he lets her know anyway. I mean, you know, to be fair, I think she's she's keeping quite a straight head of things because since considering she's been in a trance in her dead husband's ship in a in a rotting bed and a minute ago he was laid in bed with her, the fact that Coram has entered into a pact in order to, to get her out of what is basically Shitsville. Um, she's still pretty dubious about the whole thing. Yeah, and they have, they have a bath, don't they? So you go out yeah. and bath. Yeah, he baths her, gets her to bed with fresh clothing and, and, and everything else, and uh, and Shul vanishes. And a moment later, the large room was full of furniture and everything else Coram had desired. Coram could not doubt Shul's powers, but he did doubt the being's sanity. He undressed Relina and washed her and put her into the bed. She awoke then, and her eyes were still full of fear, but she smiled at Coram. You're safe now, he said. Sleep. Now Coram bathed himself and inspected the clothes that had been laid out for him. He pursed his lips as he picked up the folded garments and looked at the armour and weapons that had also been provided. They were Vadag clothes. There was even a scarlet robe that was almost certainly his own. He began to consider the implications of his alliance with the strange and amoral sorcerer of Svi and Fan which, of course, we find over Leaf in Chapter 2, the Eye of Rin and the Hand of Quill, which is a good reminder that it's not the Eye of Rill and the Hand of Quim, <laughs> which I always get wrong, that actually this island is uh, has got a, a fairly disturbing name. But before we get there, Shul is now a beautiful 15-year-old girl with an obscene chuckle. Yeah, that's not very nice, is it? No, no, it's a good description, though. It's, yeah. it's a straightforward, sharp description. Fifteen year, Beautiful 15-year-old girl with an obscene chuckle. An obscene chuckle, it, it, yeah. That, that... Few, few words, but yeah. conjures up strange images. And then you've yeah. got quite quite a nice um, kind of description of the room as well. You know, dark yeah, dark and cluttered, all manner of plants and stuffed animals, books and manuscripts teetered on crazy leaning shelves. The crystals of peculiar colour and cuts, bits of armour, jewelled swords, rotting sacks from which treasure as well as other nameless substances spilled. There were paintings and figurines, an assortment of instruments and gauges, including balances, and what appeared to be clocks with eccentric divisions marked in languages Coram did not know. Living creatures scuffled amongst the piles and chittered in corners. The place stank of dust and mould and death. Sadly, no two-man canoes. Yeah, which is disappointing. But, you know, that's... Uh, You know, you you go to Shul's place, you can nick some uh, chittering animals. Yeah. He's quite quite into crystals, isn't he, Uh, Malcock? You know, most of his kind of... um, His machines run on crystals of some description, don't they? 
Yeah. I, that's another paragraph I really like, though. Cause it's, it's great, yeah. Uh, it's, it's really vivid. And it reminds me of something you'd get in a Jim Henson thing, like Labyrinth or, or um, The Dark Crystal or something like that. You know, the, the kind of things that he describes in the chittering creatures running backwards and forwards. That's what you'd get in a Jim Henson film. And yeah. I, Jim Jim Henson did read Mocock, so you know, it kind of yeah, it, it, it was he was mates with Rodney Matthews, right. and he kind of discovered uh, Mocock stuff through being friends with Rodney Matthews and read some Mocock. Yeah, I think the um, so I'll just come back to that in a sec, but the, the next line's quite quite amusing as well. If it was read properly, which I won't do, but it was, uh, you do not, I think, attract many customers. <laughs> Coram said. Yeah, which is brilliant. But I think for me, when I, when I read this book, bearing in mind most of the fantasy books that had sorcerers or wizards, and they're all like a facsimile of Gandalf or whoever, yeah. weren't they? So yeah. point, pointy hats, massive beards, probably a dress and a big stick. And then you you read something like this, and there's like a, a petty shit-kicking sorcerer who does really weird stuff and and yeah. has a yeah has a really just I, I don't know it was just quite interesting when i first read it it was like well this this isn't normal magic no and and, and the brilliant thing about it is is it's evidently extraordinarily powerful but is still a sniveling weasel yeah yeah <laughs> it's and- just an absolute tit and he's a bit lazy i think so he's, he's really yeah. a bit of a pigsty isn't it? i just need to yeah. um Quickly rinse out this glass for my next beer. Okay. Well, in that case, I, I shall down mine and prepare my next one. Okay. What you got? A couple of boring ones, really. I've got uh, this one is called Baby-Faced Assassin. Got a chicken on it, and uh, it's an Indian pale ale. Uh, boring. I know. I didn't have a lot of time to uh, crank up any comedy beers, really. Right. Well, I've got another one from Fuller's. Um, Fuller's, that don't they do? They don't do landlord, do they? What do Fuller's do? I can't remember. Anyway, but they're a, they're a, a fairly um, well-known London brewery. So yeah. I've got Fuller's and Friends Respect Your Elders, which is a mosaic ESB. What's an ESB? An electric stout beer, I think. Hmm. Old brewery meets new brewery and bonds of the mutual appreciation of ESB. That's the story behind this beer, which gives the classic style a contemporary topical twist. With a trio of new world hops, this malty, marmalady beer beautifully bridges the generation gap. Mm. Yeah. A lot of these labels, they're just like fucking management speak, aren't they? Yeah. Anyway. I've got this one, which is the uh, Baby Face Assassin is a deceptively drinkable IPA. That shouldn't be taken lightly. It flavours of mango, apricot, grapefruit and mandarin. So, anyway. Mm-hmm. But Shul roots around and comes up with a pair of sacks. And it turns out he's got the eye of one dead god and the six-fingered hand of another. Two ancient warring brother gods that disappeared aeons ago. And Coram's a bit dubious, but you know, it's magic items, isn't it? Can't it is, magic items. It is pretty much, isn't it? I was just going to say, Shul put out his girl's tongue and lipped his girl's lips. <laughs> the old eyes glittered at Coram. The, the gifts I have here, they once belonged to the warring gods. What I found weird about this as well, having, you know, once you've read all the Mocock stuff, is going back to the 
the the the quill and rin kind of godhood piece is where yeah. they fit into the multiverse really well that's the interesting thing they're just like completely separate from it it's like they're yeah. almost cos- cosmically detached yeah aren't they cosmically um, weird as well aren't they? yeah so. and we've, we found a little bit more about them probably at the end of the fourth book but nothing whatsoever in between um, and, all, and all we do know is, is they essentially turn Corum into uh, a demigod level ass kicking machine yeah. because of their powers. Um, so he passes out and he wakes up and they're attached to him. And Rolina's horrified and she's sat up in bed going, what the fuck is going on with your eye and your hand? Yeah. And, uh, and he probably would, wouldn't he? Yeah, well, yeah, I guess so. He looked down at his left hand. It was of similar proportions to the old, but it was six-fingered and the skin was like that of a jeweled snake. You see, I think that's quite cool. <laughs> he staggered as he strove to accept what had, like, what had happened to him. These are Shul's gifts, he murmured inanely. They are the eye of Rin and the hand of Quill. They were gods, the lost gods, Shul said. Now I am whole again, Relina. Whole? Mm. You are something more and something less than whole, Coram. Why did you accept such terrible gifts? They're evil. They'll destroy you. I accepted them so that I might accomplish the task that Shula set me, and thus gain the freedom of us both. I accepted them so I might seek out Glandith and, if possible, strangle him with his alien hand. I accepted them because if I did not accept them, I would perish. Perhaps, she said softly, it would be better for us to perish. So, yeah, she's quite rationalist as well, isn't she? And and, and certainly anti-Hand of Rill. She's not yeah. a massive fan, is she, to be honest, with his, uh, no. his new magic eye? No, she's not. So she's not convinced by any of it. And I still think she's given him quite a tough time, considering where she was half an hour ago. Yeah, she's not happy, is she, really? No, which, OK, fair enough. She's not happy, but give him a break. He's doing all this for her, isn't he? Is he, though? Is he really? Because he's quite into this vengeance piece, isn't he? There is that. Yeah, so you can appreciate, yeah, you need, you want your hand and your eye back, but... Yeah, fucking get a grip, Coram. So you've lost your eye. So you've lost your hand. Yeah, so and so your family. What? Yeah. And your family. Yeah. And everybody you know. And your entire race. Yeah, Just, but, but you, does, that, does that warrant having a six-fingered hand? I don't think it does, does it? I, well, Relina says no. I say yes. I'm, 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 I'm behind him on this. And I think that's probably what I think, you know, with with that description with the the new eye and the weird eye patch that he has on there. Yeah. That's why a lot of people have struggled to draw him, I think. Yeah. And we'll talk about the eye patch shortly. You, you know what, though? I, I think half, after having done a couple of Elrics, we've done the Dreaming City and Elric of Melnubonair, and after having done the Jewel in the Skull and Hawkmoon being such a boring, flat weirdo, okay, handy in a fight. And after having done the Eternal Champion, where Erikos is basically just a fucking Nazi, he's not a nice man, is he? No, actually, I'm firmly full square behind Corum. I'm thinking. Oh, same here. Yeah, yeah, Corum, I dig you. You're you're an interesting protagonist. I think your your vengeance is a perfectly decent motivation, considering what Glandithacre did to you. So, you know, I'm all for it. And if you can roll in a little bit of um, looking after your lady along the way, you know, what's gen- to like? Yeah, I mean, he generally does get psyched off, doesn't he, for being, like, one of the more boring characters. But if you if you look at his, like, arc, especially in this 
this particular book as well. It's it's quite a big one, isn't it? You've gone mm. from somebody poncing around doing your symphonies for a couple of decades to yeah. holy shit, what's this guy having to go through to just make sense of what's going on? And still, the the, the first book is even to, up to the end of it is pretty much going is this real or what the hell's yeah. going on here? Because it's just mental, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's kind of like a fever dream. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. Yeah, it's very much, as, as a fantasy book, yeah, well, you know, we talked about it before, world building and stuff like that, but this is probably Moorcock's most psychedelic set of stories, these first three, I think, because they're yeah. just, uh, the, you know, it's the equivalent of, you know, the yes, double gate, full sleeve, artwork craziness yeah. isn't it yeah it and, is. that, and that's probably why nobody's ever picked up and gone oh let's make some Corum films it'd be brilliant because uh, it'd have to be directed by David Lynch wouldn't it or somebody equally as crazy Tassim thing. yeah yeah and, it, and it's yeah. it's one of those things when you watch a film like Valerian which you know I'm not advocating is a good film mm. or, or even Fifth Element again yeah. not a great film but the at least the ingenuity and the imagination of it is is pretty much out there, and it's really yeah. cool. Crap. Well, I'll, I'll I'll fight for the fifth element because I love it. But, oh, I love but the Vale. Element. Yeah, but Val- Valerian, I think, really, really suffers from its its leads. How and no offense, Dane, but how Dane DeHaan keeps getting leading roles in movies, I just I found it baffling. Anyway, really good idea. Dan DeHaan is like a charisma vacuum who sucks all the joy and interest out of it. Anyway, okay, Lord Shark's ostentatious couch, Dan DeHaan as Coram. No! He can be Hawkmoon. Yeah, yeah, he can be Hawkmoon. So anyway, chapter three, Beyond the Fifteen Plains. Uh, this this is a top draw chapter. I love this. I'm loving Night of the Swords all round, but I really dig this chapter. And Shul takes on a new form again. A bear in a plumed helmet wearing <laughs> trues. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Yeah, and yeah, the, the, this is why, you know, why why there isn't a Coram RPG out there that everybody's playing every week is just beyond yeah. me. You've got you've got bears wearing trousers, sorcerers yeah. of fifteen year old girls. That's you know, yeah, that sounds a bit sinister, but not meant to be. Yeah. Um yeah, it's just amazing. Uh, well, I think we did mention last time around, or maybe on the Mococ RPG episode, there is that Dark Side Corum game, which I think probably is the best example of any of that. Certainly, any of the Chaosium. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, even though it's not a Chaosium product, but it was for the Chaosium game. It was for Elric Stroke Stormbringer Fifth Edition, wasn't it? Yeah. That is great. The artwork's fucking beautiful as well, apart from the cover, which is questionable. And of course, uh, Dirk the Dice is running Corum at Grogmate next week. Yes. Which is a shame I can't make it. Well, you know what to do. So, anyway, Shul's a bit full of himself and pleased with his handiwork, but Coram's not actually that impressed until he sees suddenly through the eye, after initially complaining that it don't work like it's bust or something. Yeah, a broken eye. (laughs) (laughs) What have you sold me? Coram frowned suspiciously at the sorcerer. The action made him blink. Suddenly, through his new eye, he saw many new images while still staring at Shul with his ordinary eye. There were dark images, and they shifted until eventually one predominated. Shul, what is this world? 
I'm not sure. Some say there are another 15 planes, which are a kind of distorted mirror image of our own planes. This could be such a place, eh? Things boiled and bubbled, appeared and disappeared. Creatures crept upon the scene and then crept back again. Flames curled. Land turned to liquid. Strange beasts grew to huge proportions and shrank again. Flesh seemed to flow and reform. I love that. It's great. It, yeah, it is. And that's that's chaos, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. Pure chaos. Uh, and once again, that's something where you need a, a, a really visionary director, or certainly a cinematographer and special effects guy to really make something interesting out of that. But Shewell explains that the eye allows him to see into the 15 planes and gives him a rather ostentatious eye patch that blocks (laughs) the 15 planes but allows normal sight otherwise. And how how is it described? It's described as a shield, isn't it? But it's like... It's it's a bit fancy-pansy with jewels and all sorts of other gubbins on it. I think you're right. Whenever people draw Coram... They always have this challenge where not only have they got to get Coram right, but they've got to come up with some kind of look for him based upon this description. I, I quite like the P. Craig Russell Coram in a way, but I, I don't think they've ever really got it quite right. I don't think anybody's really captured Coram satisfactorily, apart from Simon Perrins, of course, on the Breakfast in the Ruins banner, which is awesome. So shout out for Simon there. Yeah. So then we get back to the uh, who's got the biggest wanger competition between Coram and Shul, don't they, when they start yeah. having a go at each other again. And uh, and actually Relina gets stuck in as well. She they does. have a bit of a ding she has a bit of a ding dong with, with Shul. But then they get down to the business of uh, of the heart of the Knight of the Swords. Hmm. And it turns out that Shul's island home is a bit grim and it's full of weird big plants that move and make a sickly scent. And we found out that the island of the gorged god was named after the previous owner who gorged on children, as it happens. Yeah. And, yeah, that's uh, a little bit unpleasant, a little bit freaky. I think the the other thing about that, so it's quite a a grim kind of backstory, but almost cartoonish, or it it reminds me of, like, the the Harry Housen kind of things. But then he said, uh, and how did you take over the island? Uh, The god ate children. One a day was sacrificing to the ancestors you call the Nadrag. Having plenty of money, it occurred to me to buy a good number of children and feed them to him all at once to see what would happen. And what did happen? He gobbled them up and fell into a gorge slumber. And then you crept up and killed him. No such thing. I captured him. He's one of his, he's one of his own dungeons somewhere. There is no longer the fine being he was when I inherited his palace. <laughs> And I think yeah. that for me sums up Shul and Driven as yeah. a bit of a wrongen. Yeah, yeah. And he says, uh, he says, there's another reason why the knight or any of the others don't trouble me too much, for I hold Pilproth prisoner, which is a quite a wacky name. <laughs> so yeah, it's, 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 so so all the while you've got this description going on, you've got weird, massive, meaty plants trying to touch Coram up, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like constantly. They're either wrapping themselves around his waist or stroking his hand. It's all really fucking queasy. It's awesome. I love it. Yeah. So what, one of the reasons the other gods don't destroy the island is because he's got him... Um... Yeah, that's right. He's got Pilproth yeah. imprisoned. The gorge. So gorge. they get to talking about where the heart is, and, and you know, Coram's like, come on, where's the heart? You can tell me. And he says, it's beyond the Thousand League Reef, a place called Erda that is sometimes land and sometimes water. Beyond that is the desert called Drunhazat. <laughs> 
Beyond the desert are the flamelands, where dwells the blind queen, Uruse. And beyond the flamelands is the ice wilderness, where the brickling wander. Corrin paused to peel a sticky leaf from his face. <laughs> the thing seemed to have tiny red lips which kissed him. And beyond that, he asked sardonically, Why beyond that is the domain of the Knight of the Swords? I think that, that bit there and that, you know, the sidonic thing was was quite a big thing for Moorcock, isn't it? It's the first time I ever came across the word and had to look it up. Yeah, <laughs> and it's almost. I like... actually saw someone mention that on Twitter, saying <laughs> that reading Carum actually they had to look up the word sardonic for the first time. Yeah, when I first read it, it was like, yeah, sardonic and quintessential was another one. There's quite a few words yeah. that I kind of picked up, but I think if you just go back to that bit where he's going. And beyond the Thousand League Reef is a place called Erda. And then there's a place <laughs> called Junhaza. And then yeah. there's a desert he goes, and beyond that, <laughs> what are you? Yeah. And like, beyond the land of wobbles, <laughs> yeah. the other are the, are the hills of cherries. Yeah. Oh. And then yeah. you have to go through the umbrellas of Pat Ferrick. Yeah. And then Karam just goes, this adventure's boring, it's just yeah. on a rail. <laughs> yeah. This this is just railroading me, man. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm off to the forest. Anyway, we also find out that the plants that keep touching him up actually eat meat, and Shul yeah. occasionally draws in ships <laughs> to feed him. He really is He really is a massive tosser. He really is. He's yeah. not got much going for him, has he? Apart no, from his... no, he doesn't. And how many bags of hands has he got? That's what I want to know. I don't know, but I, I do love the fact that all the way through this... He's a bear in a plumed helmet wearing trues. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You and, know, and I, I, I could almost warm to him. And again, that would lose quite a bit of the audience, wouldn't it, if you had his TV show? There's, a, <laughs> uh, there's Andrew Scott. <laughs> and, and, Andrew Scott is now a 50-year-old girl. And now he's a bear. Now he's a bear. Yeah. That's I, right. I, I'm out. Yeah. I, I, would be. I wonder if you could... I wonder if you could tempt Andrew Scott and say, Andrew, we want you to play this really crucial, critical character who's a sorcerer, but you only really provide the voice because sometimes he's a bear, sometimes he's an arthropoid in a green jacket and breeks. I wonder if he'd buy into it. I don't know. So, Coram takes off his, his eye patch again, or his eye shield or whatever it is, and, and looks into the distance and sees some kind of root... And after a little bit more exchange with Shul and Jivan and some other bits and pieces about gods, and Shul explains to him some of the nature of gods. And Coram says, We studied little mysticism along the Vadag folk, but I understand all gods to be omniscient and omnipotent. And Shul says, Only on very limited levels. Some gods, the Mabden pantheon, such as the dog and the horned bear, Oh, bless them. The Mabden have got a really simple pantheon, haven't they? Yeah. The dog and the horned bear are more or less omniscient concerning the affairs of Mabden, and they can, if they wish, control those affairs to a large degree. But they know nothing of my affairs, and even less of those of the Knight of Swords, who know most things, save those things that happen upon my well-protected island. This is an age of gods, I'm afraid, Master Coram. There are many, big and small, and they crowd the universe. Once, it was not so... Sometimes, I suspect, the universe manages with none at all. It could come to pass, it's thought. Shul tapped his skull. That creates gods and gods who create thought. There must be periods when thought, which I sometimes consider overrated, <laughs> does not exist. 
its existence or lack of it does not concern the universe after all. But if I had the power, I would make the universe concerned. Shul's eyes shone. I would alter its very nature. I would change all the conditions. You are wise to aid me, Master Coram. Coram jerked his head back as something very much like a giant mauve tulip, but with teeth snapped at him. <laughs> Just to bring it down to earth. <laughs> yeah. I doubt it, Shul, but then I have no choice. Indeed you have not, or at least your choice is much limited. It is the ambition I hold not to be forced to make choices on however large a scale which drives me on, Master Coram. Aye, nodded Coram ironically. We are all mortal. Speak for yourself, Master Coram. And thus ends book two. And um, I haven't actually commented yet on this uh, Respect Your Elders stuff, this Mosaic ESB. I've got to look up what an ESB is. Listeners, if you know what an ESB is, and you, if you're beer fans, please do let us know. I won't look it up. I'll rely on, 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 on our, our listeners to tell us. Um, it's all right. Is it? Yeah, this one's all yeah, right, right, actually. It's, a, it's one of your, uh, your common old garden, you know, mm. It's all right. Mm. They all taste much of a muchness after a while, don't they? But anyway, that was chapter two. No, it wasn't. That was book two of The Night of the Swords. It was, indeed. Yeah. And uh, it, not much happened, to be fair. Not much happened, but I think the not much that happened was really cool in the way that it happened. And I think it continues the um, the high quality of the writing in this one. And I've, and I've got to say, I read the second Coram trilogy last so I've and I've read that in the last few years, unlike a lot of the stuff we've been covering, and that really does get tedious with the fetch quests. Yeah, but it, this, yeah. I'm really enjoying. Yeah, I think the, the the first and second book are really good. Um, mm. The third one is good, but yeah, we'll probably get yeah, to it. At no some spoilers. Point. Yeah, but I think the, the whole quest of this one's really cool, and it's just yeah, um, yeah once. It does go super psychedelic, though. And I think the second yeah. one is probably more so, in a way. Yeah. I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to it. Um, after I, I really enjoyed reading The Eternal Champion, and I've, I very much enjoyed talking about it, but it wasn't a happy read. I, d- I really don't like the book, Eternal Champion. Yeah. And, and I'm not... I think the Alex Scarsall one, was that the Phoenix and Obsidian? Yeah, or the Silver Warriors in the US. Yeah. That that one I kind of liked a bit more. Eternal mm. Champion I read probably after I'd read all the Elric ones, all the Hawkmoon ones, and and the Corum ones. And I went back to it and I was like, well, the the whole point of the Eternal Champion is why did he end up being having to fight through the multiverse for forever? Yeah. And you get the 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 origin story, and it's like, oh, because he's a complete tool. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Yeah, you know, yeah, and then you meet different versions of Ericosa, don't you? Ever, you know, in different books. But ultimately, yeah, it's a bit of a knobber, isn't he? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, one of the reasons I, I I appreciate the book rather than enjoying the book is how deliberately challenging it is. Yeah. And I think when I originally read it, I probably I, I probably didn't. Um, it's funny doing this is is you because you read it and you think about it a little bit more as you talk about it and you kind of discuss it with somebody else. And you tease things out. Uh, what I really appreciate about the Eternal Champion is is what he says about the heroic archetype, hmm. um, and 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 how actually he he 
kind of inverts it. And, uh, and and I really did like that. Would I be in a hurry to read it again? Probably not. But I do appreciate it for what it is. And I think he was he was way ahead of himself, actually. Although he describes it himself, he was writing it as an angry teenager or you know, the original 60-page short story. He wrote it as an angry teenager reeling against the world. But it still has that core um, element of Moorcock, which is fascism is bollocks. Yeah, 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 know? yeah, definitely. I think, and, and and I really, really like that's the thing I really, really do admire about it. Yeah, and I think it's just a weird book, isn't it? I think it's yeah. a very strange book, but it's almost like when when was that when he, when he started tying it all together? That's the strange part of it, isn't it? Because you obviously had to have that arc of yeah, start to finish, which yeah. has obviously changed over the years. Yeah, and I think that's the thing. He starts to try and tie all that together, doesn't he, in the 70s, which culminates in the quest for Tanalarm, which, frankly, when we get... I, I do look forward to getting to that and reading it again, because I haven't read it for 25 years, because I remember at the time reading it thinking, oh, fuck off. Uh, Apart- it, was, it was so unsatisfying. The, the, the only bit I really like is the, the Coram bit, that, because that really brings a bit of closure to it all. Yeah, yeah. On a slightly different note, I am opening up a Kiyuchi brewery White ale, which um, everything in it is in Japanese. Oh, I really like that one. That's great. Is that the one with the just... bird on the front? Yeah, that one. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that. It's great. It's one of my yeah. one of my faves. I'm going in. I'm going in full throttle. So, on a slightly different note, and I mean, obviously, we'll get round to book three at some point soon. Mm-hmm. But on a slightly different note, I've been thinking about this podcast being a Michael Moorcock flavored podcast. Yeah, and of course, um, part of the podcast is around books that came to me via pops. And of course, for the Halloween special, we covered the rats, which was good fun. But I picked up last week the top one hundred fantasy books, uh, basically uh, a book by book opinion by Moorcock and James Carthorn yeah, on right. their top one hundred fantasy books. So I think from time to time what we might have to do is dip into that list and do one of Moorcock and Cawthorn's top 100 and not break it down in the detail we do with the Moorcock books, but perhaps do it like we did with the rats, read the book and talk about it for an hour. Yeah, that sounds um, good. And kind of tie that in as an occasional episode and as I, well. And I've got one kind of recommendation stroke thoughts. Michael Shabon's probably one of my favourite writers and he, yeah. he's into... So he wrote a book called Gentleman of the Road, and it, mm. it's basically inspired by Moorcock, and it's about two oh. two Jewish swordsmen with hilarious adventures therein. So he wrote um, the Cavalier and Clay book, and yes. you know he's done. He's probably my, one of my favorite writers, but this is a really cool kind of. I think he did it almost as a homage to Moorcock. It just he's he's talked about Moorcock before in some of his kind of essays and things like that. Yeah, and it is basically all oh, right. Okay, it, but it's quite it's quite interesting because it, it's set in there's like one of the one of the characters. It's a bit like uh, Elric and Moonglum, Stroke, Fafford and the Grey Mouse kind of stuff. So one yeah. one's really massive. The other one's like a a doctor, but it's but he's kind of weaved in the kind of Jewish mythology of it, and it's in like Kaz- yeah. Kazakhstan and around there. It's just really cool. 
So that would be quite, mm, quite sounds interesting. It'd be quite a good one. It's really thin as well, and it's. I was about to say, is it less than 160 pages? Yeah, well, I can't remember. Yes, but I've got it. Let's do it. But it is really thin, and I think it, it'd be a really good one to read, just because he's always talks about what a massive influence Moorcock is on him, and he's done he's done a Sherlock Holmes one as well. But yeah, he's he's such a good writer. His Pulitzer Prize. All right, cool. But that'd be a good yeah. one. Anyway, thanks once again for uh, for joining me in virtual Derry and Tom's on this occasion and discussing The Night of the Swords, book two. And uh, we'll be back shortly, I'm sure, to do book three. And then, of course, once we've done book three, we're going to have to decide what you do next. Danus and the Dark Straits of Reglathium has been snapped up by Tash. Excellent. We're doing that. <laughs> yeah, we're doing that as a one-ship book. Yeah. So you spared that. But just so you know, I've also picked up the Conquerors of Reglathium, the Caves of Reglathium, Prisoner of Reglathium. So, you know, you never know. I think Although, life is a bit on, too on, short, isn't it? For... Yeah. On, on early experience of reading Danus, the Dark Straits of Reglathium, ooh, whether I'll manage to do another one, I'm not entirely sure. So, I would at least have to wait a few irons before I made that decision. That's fair. Uh, Inside a joke. (laughs) But, that said, uh, and I don't know how you feel about this, there's quite a lot of movement amongst the patrons suggesting that we look at Nine Princes in Amber. It's not a bad bad shout. Or we could Mm. go for Behold the Man. Yeah, Behold the Man is is always at the back of my mind. Um, But before we get to Behold the Man, I want to do... I want to do War on the World's Pain. I want to do Warlord of the Air. I, was gonna I want to get those yeah. big beasts out of the way before we tackle Behold the Man. To be honest, from from my point of view, the the odd the Bastable books I've read once. Like, what do you fancy doing Warlord of the Air then? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we'll, we'll get Coram out. When I say out of the way, we need to give Coram his dues. We do indeed. Um, we might need to skip the super quest. Ram struck bull trilogy. Oh, we'll, do we'll do them eventually, but there's, yeah. there's, we've got all the time in the world. But the, the th- I think the things that are at the back of my mind that I want to get to are um, I want to do Sailor on the Seas of Fit. Yep, which is first one, first Elric book I read. Yep, that's a biggie for me as yeah. well. It wasn't the first one I read, but it was one of the earlier ones that I bought for myself after after reading uh, Stormbringer. Yep. So I want to do Sailor on the Seas of Fit, and actually. Uh, our um our extraordinary patron Anthony Piconti actually suggested it, so we've got to take that on board. And um yeah, so we'll, we'll give it some thought. Warlord of the Air will definitely get on the schedule. Sailor and the Seas of Fate will get on the schedule, and possibly looking at another couple of bits and bobs like uh, Nine Princes in Amber, and uh, at some point there's another side excursion from Moorcock and an excursion more into those books that Pops gave me. I'll be doing Wheels of Terror with Robbo. <laughs> really? Yeah, which would be interesting. Cool. So, hello there, Robbo. I understand you've got your USB microphone sorted out and we're going to be testing it. And Robbo has been giving it a read and we're going to give that a look at some point. But Excellent. we'll be back soon with, with Night of the Swords Book 3. And also, they've, they've actually been, since we did the rats, there have been a couple of requests for us to do the fog. <laughs> <laughs> and the spear, surely. Well, actually. Uh, 
I have been thinking after after reading the rats, I've been thinking I should probably revisit the spear because I do remember really enjoying it and it being actually a really good thriller with a horror like a horror element. Yeah, to yeah. It. yeah, it was mostly stupid, but it had its points, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, good stuff. But anyway, cheers, Loz. No it's problem. been a pleasure as always, and uh, well, see you next time. See you later. <laughs> Thanks as ever to Laws for being a great co-host. And also thanks to our patrons. First up, our chaos engineers, hard at work in the belly of the ship. Andrew Cicluna, Andrew Van Ness, Fred, David, Jim, John Lays, John Watt, Nelbert, Simon Perrins, Robbo, Malpertwee and Ben. And also to our Jugaderos over at the Terminal Cafe. Working to gain that winning hand. Clarky, Craig, Loz, Matthew, Randall, Steve, Tom, Ian and Alexander. And of course to Master Piconti, supporter extraordinaire, currently perusing the Don Blass's limited library and finding it wanting. To Lord Norman, baker on the rocks, baking weird treats in between harsh, confusing blasts from the choirs of the Wuzzo Birds. And to the lapsed gamer, sadly lamenting losing his grasp on those last but most delicious victuals in the houses of the Sufus, prior to the closure of the landlord's gates. And to Dread Mortman, always behind the curve in the ways of Ash, but ever yearning to catch up and burn things. Groovy. And last but not least, to Sir Neil of Burton, the Destiny Knight, etcher of every single solitary stone in the court of the bowl. Much to the elector's annoyance. Right, that's about it from me for now. Stay tuned for chapter 6 of the Journal of Gerard Arthur Connolly after the transition. And before I go, don't forget you can follow and gab with us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us at breakfastruins at outlook.com. The blog is at breakfastintheruins.com. We have our Patreon page too, and we're out there on most podcatchers. If you have a favourite and we're not on it, drop me a line and I'll see what I can do about it. So, in the meantime, until we talk again, stay safe and I'll see you soon on the Moonbeam Roads. Journal of Gerard Arthur Connolly Chapter 6 Saw feet, a bath at last, and a late dinner We made Gravenberg by nightfall. If the castle had ever had any defensive walls to speak of, they had long since crumbled into the soil. A number of low stone buildings cowered close into the keep as if seeking shelter from the wind that scoured the high hill upon which it stood, commanding a view of the approaches from the forest and the desolate lowland marsh that fell away behind it. I thought it fleetingly strange that despite its prominent position in the landscape hereabouts, we had not seen it from the road until almost at the foot of the hill. I attributed the oversight to fatigue. Pallid light flickered from lanterns that framed an iron-shod wooden door of hefty proportions, a front door complete with knocker. 
I confess I'm somewhat underwhelmed, said Friedrich. We four could take this castle. He may have been right. We had observed no guards or watchmen, and there was no sight or sound of hounds or any kind of sentry, animal or otherwise. Be on your guard, replied his brother. There are other methods that can guard a keep that are not so obvious. Behind me, Morton grumbled. In Scandia, castle guards, you. I turned and looked at him, not entirely grasping his meaning. I clapped him on the shoulder, though, and banged the door knocker three times. A gaunt young man with hooded eyes opened the stout door, and, following Vincent's introduction of himself, his brother, and his retainers, he ushered us in. The interior was sparsely appointed with faded tapestries, and one slush runners now worn flat and threadbare by heavy-shod feet. Our guide introduced himself as Carl, and invited us to follow him past a number of side chambers and on up a shallow staircase onto a gallery that overlooked a reception hall. My eyes were fixed instantly upon a glowing hearth, but my instinct to throw myself on the fair rug before it and sleep for a year was interrupted by a sensation in the corner of my eye. I looked for the source of the distraction, but saw only stone wall. The trick of the flickering light, perhaps. It was like an itch in my vision, but it passed as we left the gallery. Carl led us down steps and toward the fireplace which was framed by a colossal mantle of some dark form of marble. Arrayed around the walls were items of furniture which we were invited to pull close. Please, make yourself comfortable. I will arrange victuals and inform the Count of your arrival. Carl exited through a door in a dark corner where the firelight did not penetrate. I achingly extricated myself from my deck coat and draped it over the back of the high chair I had chosen. I pulled my boots from my protesting feet and examined the soles. The six-week-old Italian leather had almost worn down at the heel thanks to four days of yomping, for which such luxuriant craftsmanship was never intended. I sighed as I realised that finding a cobbler worthy of these boots would probably be a tall order in these parts. Next, examining my socks, I winced in pain as I pulled them free. In places, my blisters had worn away, leaving gaping sores to which the fabric had adhered with matted blood. I almost jumped out of my skin with a yelp when a voice said by my ear, A bath and some salve will ease your discomfort. The voice was deep and soft, unmistakably feminine. The other three looked up from their private ruminations in surprise. Morton drooled slightly. The voice belonged to a handsome young woman, generous but by no means overly proportioned, and draped in ermine and samite. She was accompanied by another man, similar in appearance and garb to the first. He bore a platter of meats, breads and cheeses, which he placed on a low table by the fire before withdrawing. I am Sabine, she declared. We introduced ourselves. Her face was not unattractive but bore the heavy, ruddy features of the region, and her attempts at a noble bearing were noticeably that. Still, she made an agreeable hostess, and I thanked my stars that I had not been found at a disadvantage by a lady of breeding. Her eyes met mine, and she lingeringly examined me, taking in every detail. My haircut, my clothes, my general bearing. Had you been at all my sort, I would have found this exciting. As it is, she simply seemed enraptured for a moment by the likes of which she had never seen. It was a perfectly normal human reaction, and one I had engendered countless times during my travels. She shortly transferred her attention to the Scandian, from whence she found her attention reciprocated in kind. I cleared my throat. 
A bath would be most welcome, my dear. Could you direct me to the bathroom? Countess Sabine, she said pointedly. I bowed slightly from the hip. Of course, Countess. Carl, Sebastian, she called. The two men emerged from shadow. Please show her Connolly, uh, Lieutenant, I corrected sharply. Her cheeks deepened in colour, and I'm sure she bit back a curse. Please escort Lieutenant Connolly to his quarters and ensure his needs are catered for. The men nodded and gestured towards another recessed door in the gloom of the hall. Carl collected my boots, socks and a haversack from the rug, and I allowed myself to be led, wincing slightly at every step, up to a hallway two levels above the floor of the hall. As we proceeded, I noticed that paintings were hanging at intervals in the hallway, the gap between each punctuated by another recessed doorway. Each door was framed in darkness, and none had the telltale crack of light at the base, indicating occupancy. The paintings were variously gradable by age according to the amount of decay to the weathered canvases. Almost all, however, portrayed the likeness of a man, or generations of men, of the same family. A similarity existed in each that suggested that the current Count Baden was from a long line of succession stretching back some considerable distance. It became apparent also that Sebastian and Carl had some features in common with the men in the paintings. At the far end of the carving hallway, that must have taken us to the other side of the keep by now, a door stood ajar and soft light emanated from within. I was ushered inside to find a steaming bath in the alcove of a sparsely appointed bedchamber. The presence of a roaring fire and a huge bed were enough, however, to make me feel immediately grateful to my hosts. The men withdrew after indicating heavy towels and a clay pot by the fire. Before closing the door, one of them, I'm not sure which, as I was already undressing, said, The Count will see you at dinner in one hour. I nodded, and the door closed. Dinner was a lugubrious affair. Count Johann Baden II was evidently not overused to company, and, beyond platitudes apparently intended to indicate sympathy with the heirs of Saarbrück, he had little to say, and seemed if anything impatient to wrap up the occasion and leave. The Countess said little, and barely looked up from her plate, other than when snatching glances at Martin, who appeared troubled, although his appetite was certainly not damaged. Sebastian and Carl did not share our meal, but served us. In the flesh, it was apparent that the Count was of the same blood as they. The wine they served was sweet and heady, and Friedrich had evidently become as impatient as I at the pregnant pauses between each burst of dialogue. I must say this for you, Count, you keep a sensational cellar, he said, before quaffing the remnants of his cup and holding it out to Carl for a refill. I am gratified that it pleases you. The Count replied steadily as he meticulously cut a piece of breast from a delicious platter of slow-roasted capon with fennel. It came from some distance away, and I doubt very much you will find the like anywhere else. I would be intrigued to know where you sourced it, Frederick pursued, but he was brought to a halt by the Count. We receive few visitors. The road to Gravenberg is seldom trod these days. Beyond us lay the marshes. We are on the way to nowhere. What brought you here? He continued to eat steadily. Each of us glanced at another for inspiration, discomforted by the sudden change of tack. Vincent spoke up first. The roads are watched by scouts and ornithopters. We had thought of making for Berlin and the court of Prince Lobkowitz, but we were overtaken by events. Events? The Count arched a brow. For the first time his face appeared less the mask of pallid flesh it had been, and his eyes shone. 
I took a moment to study him closely. He was tall and broad at the shoulder, a characteristic not shared by Sebastian and Carl. His clothing was rich, but faded and worn, much like the keep in which he dwelled. But now he appeared engaged, his face betrayed an intelligence that was not present moments ago when he appeared bored. I found it impossible to determine his age. His face was weathered and pockmarked, his hair and beard greying, but he seemed, now at least, possessed of something vital and strong. He could have been anywhere between a weathered forty and a healthy seventy. Vincent explained our last two days, and the Count listened intently. It is true, he said, I am no friend of Londra. I travelled there many years ago. The people of that isle are a sick breed, and ever have been. Even in times when they were not so rabidly twisted and paranoid, they were ever a peculiar sort. I wondered what he meant by that. As if reading my thoughts, he looked directly at me and said, Eccentric, arrogant, wrong-headed, jingoistic, they would call it at times. His gaze held mine for a moment, then dropped back to his plate. Nevertheless, you can see that we are not equipped as a stage from which to fight a war. Do you not fear their presence on your lands? asked Morton. Of course not, scoffed the Count. We are well protected here, are we not, my dear? He patted the hand of his wife, who shifted uncomfortably and nodded. Now, I must retire, he said. It has been a long day, and I am not as young as I once was. He stood, nodded, and led the Countess away. Before leaving the hall, he turned to us and addressed us once more. You are my guests. My home is yours. I strongly recommend that you do not stray far from the keep tonight. The marsh is home to strange creatures. I believe a baragoon may have made home there recently. And with that they left. What's a baragoon? I said. 